Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clear Motive Marketing. Full transparency, folks. I am one of the co-founders of Clear Motive Marketing. I have had the privilege and the amazing opportunity to be involved with my current business partner, Chad Croker, since 2010. And it has been a fantastic ride and just an amazing, amazing journey. But I'm coming here today not as a co-founder, but as a client. Over a year ago, I brought the idea of the podcast to the team, presented the challenges, presented the opportunity, presented why I was excited about it, and they worked with me to create a plan. We built a strategy, we built the brand, we built the website, and they helped me execute, and they helped me execute day in and day out as we are constantly going live with, with new, new episodes. They also were a huge help in building the audience, which can be the most challenging things, whether you're a company, with a product or a service, or just a new idea that you need to get out there. So we've grown organically from over 200 downloads last December to over 2,000 this December, which is an all-time record for the show, something we're really proud of, and I couldn't have done it without the Clear Motive team backing me at every step of the way. They specialize in helping brands that operate in fast-paced, highly competitive industries, which, let's be honest, is, is everyone these days, to deliver more consistently and more effectively day in and day out, something that we all know can be an incredible challenge in marketing with the pace of the always-on mindset. With offices and teams in both Calgary and Toronto, they work to make clients better marketers. So if you need a new website, a new brand, or simply a new efficient way to produce and deliver and get your get your creative in market and get connected with your customers, give us a call and let's have a good old-fashioned chat. Check out our work and our case studies at www.clearmotive.ca. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. Brian Slocko. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for jumping on the call. And again, Calgary conspires. It often does. And one thing leads to another. Next thing, you and I are chatting. And more importantly, you're coming on this little special series we are around venture cap, raising money, investing in Western Canada, I think. And from your nice conversation, a big black box for a lot of people and a lot of misnomers. So you are part of, you are, sorry, always looking for title, managing partner, co-founder at Metiquity Ventures. So let's start with a quick little elevator speech. Tell us about Metiquity and we'll dive in from there. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me again. So um, Metiquity is a relatively new fund that we launched about a a year ago. And and essentially, we exist to help unlock growth potential for those really early stage pre-revenue and early revenue companies here in Alberta that, um, you know, they're they're on the cusp of growth and have some great potential, but they're having a really, really, really hard time finding a true um, early stage risk capital that they need to uh, to launch them on their growth. So that's our main focus. And I'd say at the same time, we're, we're focused on the investor side as well, at helping them unlock the growth potential that they need to discover in this asset class for their own uh, portfolios. And so there's some uh, some growth and education on the investor side too that's important for us. So curious, you guys have been, you're only, you've only been around for two, three years, just, you know, not to get too far into the history, but a little bit of your background. Have you, are you entrepreneur who's had a successful exit and now you're kind of giving back or getting back involved? Or have you always been on the investment, like playing in this side and then just saw kind of this need? I know there's the guys like you come in many different shapes and sizes. I found. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm a little bit of both. I'm, I'm a, a career investment guy. I've been in the investment industry in, in different ways from investment banking and equity investing and lending to pure advisory work. And um, that's most of my, my background. And so um, uh, my co-founder of Metiquity um, is also a, a strong investment background, but he was recently um, a co-founder of a local company called Atabotics and um, moved on from that uh, personally. And so uh, he had some great success with that. So um, you know, combine the two of us and we started putting our heads together on this fund probably five years ago, to be honest, uh, and just waited waited for the time to be right, for the market to be right. So I think we've between the two of us, we've got a pretty good combination of investment expertise and and hands-on, you know, operational um, technology expertise as well that, um, that I think it's well received by the companies we've invested in so far and the ones that we're talking to. No, and, I, and I've, I've had a lot of, I've had some startups on the show and they said, you know, hey, it's not just the funds that we need. We also need guidance. We need mentorship. We need support. We need access to networks. We need, you know, doors to be open. And, you know, kind of goes back to that adage of not, nothing much happens in, in, in life without a, a relationship some, somewhere along the way and being able to support that. So you made a comment that I want to explore a little bit. You made the comment around kind of started this five years ago and waiting for the market to be ready or for the, the timing to be right, which I appreciate that. Can you unpack when you say that, like, what were some of the markers? And what's changed from five years ago to now to make the last couple of years, quote unquote, the right timing for what you guys are doing? Yeah, sure. So, and I'm speaking from an investment perspective, you know, I think the, the, the Calgary ecosystems had 
a lot of uh, a lot of energy and a lot of momentum over the past five years. Certainly, a lot more today from you know from accelerators and, and advisors and different programs and sources of government funding. There's there's a lot there. But five years ago, um, we saw a problem that we still see today, which is the main reason that we started this fund. Which is again, we I I, I would call it the pre-seed funding gap. So a little bit of industry lingo there, but uh, pre-seed for us refers to the stage of growth in a company where you're pre-revenue. So revenue is zero, but you've got a minimum viable product or a good product prototype. And, but you've got customers who are, who are wanting to try it, but you need some money to, to get it in their hands. Um, that's the pre-revenue or early revenue is I would suggest a company that's got most often less than $250,000 a year in, in revenue. Um, so some different types of traction, they're not really on their way yet, but they started to explore that um, product market fit and started to, to narrow where they do fit in the, in the market a little bit. Um, and so uh, five years ago, um, from an investment perspective, I think there were still some great things happening in the ecosystem, but in that very early stage, that pre-seed stage, uh, there is very, very little supply of capital for those founders who are out on the street trying to raise money. Um, you know, there's there's not one one street or, you know, one building full of people you can go knock on their doors. It's a very fragmented market. And Calgary's ecosystem, Alberta's ecosystem in general is just, um, it's not as evolved. It's not as, as old and grown up as other ecosystems in, in North America. And so that, that gap is is huge for us. And five years ago, it was still there. But when we went out and tested the concept with the investment community and sat down with some financial people, uh, every meeting turned into an hour long conversation about what is what is Alberta's technology ecosystem. And most people weren't even aware that we had one. And so that uh, that it's not a viable uh, path for us to go down and raise capital at that point in time, because I think the awareness just wasn't great enough of, of the ecosystem in general. And so fast forward to, you know, last year and, and, and today, and um, the awareness is much greater among, among the investment community. People are looking for ways to get involved and, and ways to invest in the ecosystem. They're just not quite sure how to do that yet. And when I use the word they, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, high net worth individual investors or family offices who have a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines and can really help move the needle. Um, but they're just on unsure, um, much more willing today and, and, and um, willing to become active. Uh, and so that's why I, I, I think the time has been right for, for us to, uh, to be on the path that we're on. I've often heard that, you know, we don't have a lack of funds in Alberta. Sometimes we just have a lack of, I, I want to say lack of education, but that's maybe not, well, it, it makes it sound like this is an uneducated group. That's not true. It's a lack, <laughs> it's a lack of comfort investing in this new sector. Yes, we're used to investing in, yeah, we're going to drill some holes and maybe it works out. And, you know, we're, we're very comfortable with that. And that arguably is a high yield, but also a high risk activity. And I've heard a lot of the community talk about, well, yeah, we're just not used to having these conversations with this, you know, whether it's biotech or whether it's, you know, a SaaS platform or all these different types of, you know, things that fall under technology ecosystem that we're just not used to the model. And uh, it, would you say, has that been your case or like, cause again, I don't want to say uneducated cause that's not, that's not a fair way to say that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I do talk a lot about helping to educate the investment community, but I think it's, I think it's my read on that is that, you know, much of that investment community uh, has the perception and believes that they don't understand technology. They, they understand oil and gas, but they've been investing in innovation in oil and gas for a long time. Um, when you dig into how do you evaluate an investment in oil and gas versus one in a technology company, we're looking at the same fundamentals in the management team, um, the business model, the industry, the market, growth potential, all those kinds of things are not really that different. I think what one of the bigger challenges is, to be honest, with a lot of the wealth is controlled here in Alberta um, by the first generation of families that earned it. So whether it was an oil and gas or an operating a business where they did really well, those people, many of them remember the late 1990s and they remember the dot-com era. And that's probably forever burned into a lot of people's minds about what technology is. And, and we all saw billions of dollars evaporate back then right Eva yeah absolutely. <laughs> so fast forward today and if it's something they haven't spent a lot of time focused on this industry and they're and they perceive it as this mysterious black box because they don't quite know how it works and how do we make money in this space that's where the education becomes important is to demystify that and help people understand that the 
technology investment ecosystem has evolved a lot over the last 20 years. The, the risk return profile has changed a ton, um, and we can talk more about that. But it's, it's not what it used to be at, at all. And I think the, the path and the timeline to success or failure is much shorter, and the capital needs are a lot lower as well. Uh, right, because how how fast we can spin things up, how quick you can get to that MVP, like the you know technology and it's how adaptable and quick it is compared to what it was twenty years ago. But I, I really like that you brought up brought up the dot com boom. Like we have long memories, but yet sometimes we have really short ones yeah, as, as well. <laughs> in terms of, and I've heard some stories in Calgary about a few tech startups that were around at that time, where a lot of family offices that were traditionally oil and gas related got involved and lost a lot of money. And they said, don't underestimate that that was a well earned lesson that closed a whole bunch of doors for a long time. I appreciate that you brought that up. There's, there's always legacy in history that you don't always see at first when you pass yeah, over. Absolutely. It and I think it, you know, it raises an important point that goes back to the, some of the fundamentals of investing and building a proper portfolio for yourself as an investor and even taking a portfolio approach to investing in venture capital as an asset class. So, you know, most family offices around the world, if you look at recent data, they are allocating about 10% of their overall portfolio to the venture capital asset class. And then if you dive into their 10% allocation, what does that look like? Well, 50 to 75% of that uh, amount that's allocated to venture capital actually is invested in funds. Um, and most of those families are invested in six to eight different funds and maybe like five to five to eight individual companies on their own. The point being they, they, they know they don't have the expertise. They know they need to rely on full-time help of professional investment managers that invest in the space. And so that's where a lot of their money goes. They go, they learn, they get educated. They do a little bit of investing on their own, but a lot of it is alongside a, a professional uh, investor, which brings, circle that back, and it, it brings up an important point of accessibility. How do you invest in this asset class to learn about it if your only options are really large $500 million venture capital funds that you've got to have a, a $5 million or a $1 million minimum investment in to be able to participate in. Well, that's not the way a lot of people are going to be comfortable starting their investing in this space, right? Well, I think that just contributes to the sense of elitism, the sense of closed door, the sense of the 1% or, you know, whatever, you know, criteria you want to put around it. Where what I'm hearing you talk a lot about is, you know, how do we fund, to speak of the two sides of this equation, we've got these early stage pre-revenue companies that arguably there's more of them versus some of the, you know, even Adabotics. That's a really big Calgary story that people hear about. But there's probably 20 other cool startups that Adabotics was X amount of years ago that no one's heard about or has funded. But the, also the Democrat, to be able to democratize investing and give people more access, I'm hearing that as well as an interesting kind of feels we're headed that way with a younger investor group that's more comfortable investing online, more savvy. You know, I think there's maybe some problems there, depending who who you, who you, who you talk to, and it kind of starts to look <laughs> a lot like gambling sometimes. But we'll, we'll, that, that's, a, that's another podcast. Maybe we'll yeah. park that for another day. But to, to think about the investing in your neighbor concept, which I've had a few guests mention, and giving access and a framework to do that, that it's not just, you know, feeling like you're just hundred percent taking a risk that there actually is a framework to do that. That feels like an interesting way to kind of open up this whole world yes. in the next. Yeah, absolutely. Years. And so, yeah. um, you know, again, I, I speak often about the family offices again, use that term loosely. It might just be, you know, a, a father or a daughter who are, you know, sharing an office and investing money together that the families earned, or it might be some large, you know, more formalized uh, group that has a staff in it. But um, the, the point being that um, many of those types of people, again, they, they, they grew up operating businesses. They had some success. They know what it's like. They exit a company. Um, I spoke to a potential investor yesterday in our fund and he had a recent exit of a, of a software business and automatically he wants to, give back into the ecosystem and find a way to invest capital to support the next generation of companies that are going to grow up and uh, be the future success stories. Because uh, again, they know what it's like. They've been there. Um, I think they want to build a better future for themselves, for their kids, for their grandkids and build a, you know, build a better community. And that's, that's important. And I think there's a good focus there today, but when you also look at the, um, this early stage ecosystem that we're talking about. And again, I apologize. I try not to use the word early stage because people use the word early stage and it talks about, you know, a company raises $5 million and it's an early stage company. I'm talking very purely, really early pre-revenue, early revenue, um, pre-seed. Um, when you look around the world at how those ecosystems come together, it is traditionally those high net worth investors, those 
successful families that have generated some wealth that that do invest locally. It, it is a very much a local ecosystem at that stage because you need to build networks. You, like you said, you need to build different different things in your business that at those early stages, you're going to rely on your local ecosystem to get you into a potential customer for a proof of concept trial or to get you to whatever it is you need. You need it locally. And, and traditionally, that capital comes first um, locally. And, and then perhaps, you know, then as the ecosystem grows, it starts to come from other sources, but those local sources of, of capital and mobilizing that capital and making it accessible and democratizing the asset class to make it accessible to people. I, I think those are critical things for sure. Well, it kind of falls in line with everything we're seeing from, you know, eat local to buy local to farm to fork. Like it, it, you know, I always look at what are the bigger cultural trends that are happening in other unrelated sectors. You're like, well, if people are getting more comfortable there and, and kind of buying with their wallets, if you will, then investing stands to follow a similar, a similar path. People want to be more, we all want to be more connected and whether it's a sense of purpose, just living in a community itself can create a sense of purpose when you, when you know the business down the street and you want, and you want them to succeed. So thinking about this, it almost feels like there's no choice but it to be a local ecosystem because I've talked to some other uh, individuals that deal with larger um, raises and they're like, yeah, you know what? Still, a lot of our money's coming from south of the border. Not a lot of it's coming from here. But when you're trying to raise 500 grand, the odds of going down to Boston and raising 750 grand for your early state probably doesn't make any sense if you're not a local company. So it almost requires that if we don't have that here, those companies are literally left with very few options. Yeah, I, I, I really believe so. And I think maybe if, if we unpack that one a, a little bit, you know, I can just talk about why we're, why we're in this predicament a little bit more. Um, um, and so the traditional venture capital ecosystems evolved a lot over the last 10 years. And the U.S. is probably five to 10 years ahead of us in these trends. But essentially what's happened is that um, you know, 10 years ago, you'd have a traditional venture capital fund that would invest you know, maybe $5 million in a really early stage company like we're talking about. Uh, and back at that point in time, it still cost a lot to get a company started and get you know, early customers and build a team. Um, it wasn't uncommon you know, to need three, four, five million dollars to get to those early milestones. Um, Fast forward to today, and what's happened is that there's there's so much private capital on the market that's all looking for higher returns, institutional capital and and uh, family office capital. Um, there's so much demand for the venture capital asset class, and, and so what's happened is you know funds that used to be 100 million dollars, they're now 250, 500 million dollar funds, one billion dollar funds. As a fund grows to that size. It's no longer economical from a business perspective. You just can't operate investing five hundred thousand dollars at a time. You can't. You need to invest ten million, twenty million at a time, depending on the size of your fund. And so, as those funds have gotten bigger, the the average size of the investment that they want to make has gotten much bigger. So, if you look at Alberta as an example, we're we're seeing it in the data here. Um, the average investment size in Alberta in the first quarter of this year reached $11.5 million. Um, and again, there's a lot of 50, 60, $70 million investments happening that, that lead to that, that average. So on the headlines, it sounds great. You know, we've got you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, record amounts of capital flowing into Alberta. It is great in the one hand, but on, if we put the focus back to those pre-revenue and early revenue companies, um, where does it leave them? You know, if the people that used to fund their source, their, their stage of investment have now moved on much further. And for me, as a founder of, a, of an early stage pre-revenue company, 500000 is the new $5 million. I don't, I don't need $5 million to get there. I really do need a $500,000 pre-seed round because of cloud computing and just the evolution of technology. I don't need all these hardware costs that I used to. A lot of that's outsourced and very cost-effective now. So I only need 500000 to get some early customers to get a few people on my team and to get some significant milestones uh, hit at those early stages. So there's this big divergence that's happened between the kind of investment a traditional venture capital fund wants to make has gotten bigger and bigger. At the same time, the amount of capital a founder needs, it's gotten smaller and smaller. So this opens up this huge gap that we're seeing here in Alberta right now. And I think it's highlighted even more here because we're a, a younger ecosystem. And so when you look at the, um, the data put out by Alberta Enterprise Corporation that they did a survey that um, just give us idea of what does the technology ecosystem look like. About 50% of the companies that are in Alberta have less than $500,000 in revenue. Um, and again, so those are the kind of companies we're talking about that are that are struggling. Half the companies in our ecosystem 
less than $500,000 in revenue means they cannot access traditional venture capital. You can't access that until you've got close to $2 million in revenue, typically. Some of them will, will do the odd um, pre-seed type of deal and maybe invest $500,000, but they don't do it as a core focus. They do it um, to contribute to the ecosystem and not because it's their main mandate, right? Well, which which makes sense. It's, it's not the business model. It actually doesn't allow them to function the way they need to do it and to be efficient in that. But you're right. The opportunity or the gap is how quick those those funds have grown to that size and and general, people like yourself absolutely. coming in to kind of backfill that new need and how quick that has to, because it sounds like it's happened fairly. Yeah, it's happened absolutely. Slowly and then all of a sudden, like a lot of things, yeah. right? That's and in the States, yeah, it's, yeah, that's it's, a really interesting it's perspective. been backfilled. Mm-hmm. It's been backfilled um, by seed stage and pre-seed stage funds. And and um, the, the term emerging manager is a very common term today because who's going to invest in $500,000 at a time in local ecosystem companies? You can't build a even a $100 million fund and do that. Your fund needs to be 10 to $25 million, you know, maybe $50 million to be able to still focus on making those smaller investments. So um, they're, for the most part, those new emerging managers, they're, they're being formed by you know, people like us, people that have left other venture funds and want to move down into a market and start something of their own. And um, that's, that's what's been happening around the United States. It's just, we haven't got there yet in Canada. I think we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg and, and needing to have a lot of that start to, to backfill here as well. And uh, you're seeing signs of it. I think there are more people that are looking to invest in the early stages. But, uh, um, you know, what we really need is we need strong lead investors who can make a meaningful contribution to a founder's investment round. If they're out to raise $500,000, it's a lot easier to go raise money when you've already got a commitment of money. Money money likes to follow money, right? And it's that classic problem. But if you can go to the rest <laughs> of the community and say, I've got 250000 committed from a lead investor and they've done all this due diligence and we've got the terms negotiated, we'll share all that due diligence with you and collaborate and help get you on side. Then, then the money starts to get a lot easier to uh, to access and people can have more more confidence. And so I, I think that's what we need a lot more of in the early stages is a lot more um, sources of capital that are sophisticated, experienced, have a meaningful investment to make and, and are willing to spend the extra time to be the lead investor that founders need to, to guide them and get them moving. Well, it's a classic example of social proof. You know, you're not, you, you go to the restaurant that's got a lineup. Well, there's all those people have already validated your choice for even getting in the lineup with them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, for, yeah. I really, so for you guys, do you see that as part of your mandate is also knowing that and being okay and being meticulous enough with your research that you're comfortable being the first in, like the absolutely. first boots on the ground, if you will? Okay. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And that and that's an important part of our strategy. I, I would rather be the lead investor and be there so that, I mean, I get to know the founders really well, develop a relationship with them. Um, understand potential risks in the business and how we mitigate those through deal structure. Um, And then we get to collaborate with the founders and and we consider ourselves partners with those founders. So we want, we want deal terms that are going to make sense for both sides and make sure the founder remains motivated, but are going to motivate some, some key risks for us. But being there early, um, being a lead investor is, um, is, is important for, for us to do. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that leads to us taking a board seat typically and just rolling up our sleeves post-investment to, um, to have some more involvement just as advisors and, and answer questions, help them avoid some, some mistakes. And, and well, absolutely. Um, even be the first money in so and we've done it so far if again if it's a five hundred thousand dollar round or seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar round and we're putting three hundred thousand dollars in if we believe in the founding team and we believe in the company enough we'll invest that money even if the rest of the round has not come together yet um and 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 why not because we know they just need some momentum and they need some signals to send to the market that are going to help them right and so if we can be that signal and we've seen it in each of the investments that we've made so far we've 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 gone in early we've seen other um, angel or high net worth uh, individual uh, investors follow afterwards and put significant uh, capital yeah, in may, as well. Which, right? which, may, which makes sense. You're basically saying it's it's safe. Come and come and join us at, at its most at its most basic <laughs> yeah, level. Yeah. Um, how critical is it? And I've had again, feel like I'm constantly repeating. But I was uh, some other guests say, hey, like one problem that that can happen in Canadian companies specifically because of where we are is companies will not get the right deal structure out of the gate and really set them up to not be successful down the road because they gave up too much or the deal wasn't put together to really set them up for their third or fourth or fifth round, like really planning ahead. Yes. So when you work with your companies, how much is that a factor for you guys to make sure that you're not 
kind of making setting up something now that's going to hurt them three years from now or three or four rounds from now is maybe a better way. To yeah. Say. And that's a great way to put it. That's a huge uh, consideration for us. And I, and I totally think that you're right that, um, you know, sometimes I'll see a particular deal structure that I don't think aligns the interests between us and a, and a founding team, or doesn't reward us for the risk we're taking at an early stage properly. And, and so, you know, why take the risk if I can't get the potential return on the, on the flip side. And so, and we can get into the detail on what that, what that means. But, and the other one that's really tied to that is, is valuation. Um, you know, we do occasionally run across things where I think the stuff we're investing in um, like pre-revenue, early revenue, for the most part, if I was to throw out numbers, I'd say here in Alberta, those companies are valued at probably between two to $3 million. There's always exceptions to that, but that's a, that's a ballpark. Um, and so when I see a company that's that's raising money that is just starting to build their software and doesn't have customers yet and it's a little bit early and they're raising money at a five million dollar valuation or a six million dollar valuation, like there's something's something's wrong there for us. And you know, I, I don't typically I don't typically have a quick note to things without without listening. But when something's that far off on in my mind on valuation, then it's, it's like buying real estate, right? Like you, you only get one chance to, to buy in and, and, and your chance to succeed and make money is dependent on what you paid when you bought it. And if you get that wrong, then your, your chances of success are, are pretty low. So valuation is key in deal structure. You know, we, we do see often um, in some places in the community, people are using a, a safe agreement. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, with the safe, safe. Structure. I have been, you know what? The, the last three grass have brought up the concept of safes, which I did not know about a month ago, but now I, yeah. now I do, but please give me your, what's your, cause I've heard a mixed bag. Like some entrepreneurs love them. Some investors don't love them. It, it's kind of risky, but it also is fast and it takes away a lot sometimes of the mechanisms required to yeah. get in place. So it's, <laughs> it's fast. It's not a lot of paper. It's going to be more inexpensive legally and you can get something done quicker. Um, it's not that common of an instrument in Canada yet. It's, uh, it's more of a Silicon Valley kind of style um, document because it's competitive and people are moving really fast to get deals done. But my fundamental problem with it um, is that you know, if we're investing in a company today and they want $500,000, and so they're going to use a safe, which means that the, the structure of those typically works that um, our investment will convert to equity at a time in the future, maybe two years down the road, when they are successful at raising a larger venture capital round. And so- Based often on a higher absolutely. evaluation so, at that point. Yeah. So we're not talking, we're not establishing really a valuation in the safe agreement today. What they're saying is in two years, if I raise money at a $10 million valuation, I'm going to convert your dollars that are going in today to equity at a 20% discount to whatever that valuation is that's established in the future. And often there's also a, a ceiling put on, you know, a, a no more than $7 million valuation, for example. The problem I have with that, again, risk versus return. If I'm putting that really early money in and I, we're helping you build the business and get from this really early stage to, the, to, to build traction and get some customers and solve some problems, why would I want to risk being converted into equity at an $8 million valuation potentially in two years when, when I strongly believe the valuation today is maybe two and a half million dollars. Like that does not help me generate investment return. It effects effectively puts me in at three times the cost of what I'm taking the risk for. So I would, in most cases, much rather invest in pure common equity, sit alongside the founder and, uh, and and crystallize the valuation and get rewarded for the risk that I'm taking today. And so often people um, are are led down a different path, often by someone who just doesn't understand how to value a company at the very early stages. It's fairly subjective. It's mm. not that value that that valuation is so key, and especially at an early stage pre revenue. That is a little bit of a finger in the wind exercise or thumb in the wind. It is. Say, it is. Sure. And so you know. If you if you can't yeah. advise someone on how to value their business, then maybe it's easier to say punt it down the road to some some point in the future, and we'll worry about it later, which is okay. But for some, but again, for for me, <laughs> so, sounds sounds risky the way you presented that. No, no, we'll, don't worry, we'll figure it out later. It'll <laughs> well, be fine. Don't worry. That's almost what it does. <laughs> hmm, sounds right? risky. Yeah, no, I hear if you're, what you're putting a valuation cap on it, then you're essentially establishing a valuation, which gets you back into the conversation anyways. But, you know, so I think that's my fundamental problem with it. I'd much rather have a priced equity around for the most part, unless there's a good reason why, why we, 
should participate in something like that. If we can wrap our heads around it and understand it and it makes sense for us and makes sense for the company and the founders, fine. Um, but there's not a lot of familiarity in the Alberta market with that as a as an investment structure either. And so what many have done that I've seen is they take the concept and they actually turn it into a, a convertible note instead. So an investor actually feels like they own uh, a tangible security and not just a you know agreement for equity in the future, but instead you have a convertible note that has something that's a little more tangible feeling for for an investor. And I've seen those succeed probably more than a pure safe note um, it, it, itself. Okay, Inter- interesting. But as our as our ecosystem evolves, obviously more of these tools will become more commonplace, and people figure out what they like about them and what they don't. Like, I do appreciate your comment. Like, we're mm-hmm. still on the journey, right? So a lot of things that are maybe comfortable and know exactly when or where to be used are still like it's a shelf full of tools. And you're like, oh, I'm gonna grab, I'll grab this wrench and, yeah. see, and see what it does. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> I, I it bring it back and- to the fundamentals for me, and whether it's for us as a fund or any investor that's putting in. $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars, it's risk versus return and making sure that there's good alignment of interests and that investors get the chance to be rewarded for the risk they're taking. If, if, we, if we value something too high and therefore handicap an investor three, four years down the road when this thing exits and they say, oh, I took all that risk and I didn't get that greater return out of it, how willing are they going to be to keep investing in this space if, if things don't go right? Huh? Yeah, they're not. They're not. So hey, that, let's get into that a little bit. So you know, we talked about you know we've talked about the the, the startup side, the entrepreneur side, and and things there. But when I think about the investor, like I call up my financial planner, he's going to say, "Yeah, Tyler, we're going to plan for your future, but we're going to plan with a five percent return. That's yeah. all you can really expect these days after yeah. fees or whatever the case may be." So when you look at this from your perspective and you're bringing your pool of investors together, what does that conversation look like? Because I'm thinking startups, yeah, we can get to MVP fast. You know, we can fail really fast. We can succeed quickly. We can find out what we what we know or what we don't know with five hundred grand. Not I like yeah. five hundred is the new five million. That's your quote of the day, Brian. By the way, I, I, I'm gonna get you a T-shirt and send it over to you. Um, we, can, we can wear that to your to your events. But uh, when you guys look at that side and you're now out putting your hat on to talk to other investors to come in, what does that look like? And how do you guys plan? And what kind of numbers are you guys basing some? It's of a good your question. Uh, so, from like the perspective of helping a an investor understand where does where does venture capital as an asset class fit for them in a, in their investment portfolio? It's 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 honestly a, a fairly significant challenge because a lot of the um, a lot of the financial advisory community has used the old traditional 60-40 model. You know, we're going to put 60% of your money in in bonds and 40% in equity for growth and keep it simple like that, right? And then that's evolved so much. And, yeah, and, exactly. And call, and but, call it diversification. But you look at the, the leading. <laughs> you, we often look to larger institutional investors to see what they're doing, and and the leading ones, they know it's a low interest rate environment. So having a bunch of money in bonds isn't going to make you a lot of money. And so if you want to plan for a portion of your portfolio for growth for your kids or grandkids, whatever it is you want to plan for, um, you need to look to other places. So those leading institutional investors are investing up to 40% of their portfolios in private equity as an asset class in general. And that's a pretty significant component because the, the, as an asset class, the potential for, for return is much higher in private equity. And that's why people go there. At the same time, you're investing in an asset class that doesn't correlate directly with the public markets or with bonds. And so you have a um, a diversification that actually reduces your overall risk in your portfolio, yet gives you a stronger opportunity for, for higher returns in your portfolio. So when you break that private equity piece down into venture capital, we talked about it earlier, you know, a lot of families are investing 10% of their total portfolio in, um, in venture capital as an asset class. And so they're, um, you know, an early stage fund like, like ours, I think, you know, that the leading funds, the top quartile kind of funds are, are looking to deliver to investors uh, a three to five X return on their money over, you know, the, the period of the, that life of that fund. And if you want to be a leading, a leading fund, you got to be on the higher end of that, uh, that, of that range for sure. And so, um, you know, that leads to the question, you know, well, how do you do that? <laughs> and then that's, that's, <laughs> that, that, that is the magic, isn't it? Right. It there, is, right? But that, and that's part of the mystery. Cause what, what is, what is not probably common knowledge for a lot of general investors is that like investing in this space, the, the 80, 20 rule applies very much. The, the industry talks about it, it uses the term power law, which is basically 80, 20 rule. So um, you're going to have 60 to 70% of the returns in your portfolio typically come from 10 to 20% of the 
of the money that you invest. And so really we're, we're looking at opportunities that can have great growth potential and we can get a, a 10x on some of those companies we invest in, but some of them we want to get a 50x and um, 75x. And again, that doesn't happen very often. That might happen one or two times out of 25 to 30 companies that are in the portfolio. But um, that one or two companies, if we can generate that kind of return, um, can put us well on our path to generating that three to five X. And so when you look at the, the data coming out of the US, is there ever a top quartile performing fund that doesn't have at least one investment that returns the entire fund? So a $25 million fund, we invest $500,000 into a company, we're hoping to find one company where our $500,000 investment brings turns into $25 million. And that's how top funds are, are performing uh, in this in this space. And what that means is that there's still 30% of your companies that you invest in, they just don't work out and they end up going to zero. And you know, maybe another 30% of them end up, you might get one to two X on your money. Um, and you've got, you know, again, that 10% that hopefully turn into a 10 to 50 X and, and some others that lie somewhere in between there. But that's really the, um, that's really the, the formula. And again, we're not looking at being invested at an early stage. If we're in there at a two and a half million dollar valuation, we can do that by exiting and at a $50 million valuation, a hundred million dollar valuation. We want one of those really big fund returning kind of investments. We can get it if a company exits at $500 million. It's a nice thing about investing at a much earlier stage versus traditional venture capital. They're investing at a company that could be worth you know, tens of millions of dollars or $100 million. They need it to turn into a multi-billion dollar company to have the potential to, to make sense. Just for, just for it to yeah. make sense. And make you look at the average the exit value of a company in the States, It's hmm. I think it's 200 to about 200, 200, 250 million dollars over over time, and in Canada, it's 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 in that fifty to hundred million dollar okay. range. I don't know the exact number, but the average exits are not traditionally huge. Okay, so 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 about so almost less than half has in been Canada compared traditionally to in the past. We're, we're yeah. Yeah, yeah, traditionally, yeah, we're in a different, we're two different markets, but no, it's just an interesting perspective because a lot of the headlines and sometimes a lot of the things you read are American-based stories or or sound bites that we that we pick up, and it's really interesting. And I think I really appreciate hearing the psychology that's also required because again, you can't have a conversation about investing in money without talking about how messy we are as humans. But to think about that, you know, you really need those that one or two companies might carry the return for your whole portfolio of your venture cap uh, kind of allocation, knowing but the other three, the other like half a dozen might just go to zero. Like it's a different mindset than, you know, if I invest broadly in the TSX, yep. I'm going to write it up. I'm going to write it down. But statistically over time, it'll work out. Wherein what you're talking about here, no, statistically over time, that company, like it, it, uh, might, it yep. might go lower than zero, actually. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, this in is, you're living in make or break territory versus a, a more broad based, you know, let's just yeah, pick the stock market and, 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 and spray your investments across a variety of different sectors, verticals, you, we've all seen the chart. It works out over time is what we've certainly been taught to believe at this point. And the last, the last kind of couple cycles of downturns have all proven that those, yep, yeah, it was true. It all and came that back. And it did. Being able to come to terms and accept the fact that, you know, if I invest in a fund and it's got 25 companies, maybe a third of those are going to, going to go to zero. That's not, that's, that's pretty different for people to wrap their, their heads around. But that, but that is the way that, um, it the, is the sector has traditionally generated returns. Now, again, I think you can, you can, choose an investment strategy in a, in a fund, or if you're investing on your own, you choose an investment strategy that, that you believe can make a difference to those averages. So example for us, there's a reason why, there's a reason why we get on the phone with our founders every yes. two weeks. There's a reason we spend a lot of hours in a very in-depth due diligence process up front. And there's a reason we're on the board of directors and that's because we can help them avoid mistakes. We can accelerate the path. And if that means we can, we can turn a one to two X into a five X and we can turn a zero into a, a one or a two, then, then all of a sudden we start to do better in our, our portfolio and we can, um, um, you know, mitigate risk by actively being involved in the companies and do better for our investors to make sure that um, that uh, the returns are there at the at the end of the the, the life of the fund, right? And so um, that's our belief. We we're we're active um, mm -hmm. in that sense, and uh, we want to do as much as we can to to manage that risk and to to propel those companies forward. And um, it's a strategy we believe in. Um, you'll find other strategies where people are very hands off and 
might invest in a hundred companies instead and, and just yep. play the law of averages and hope that things work out. But, um, you know, we think to drive the kind of returns we need to, mm-hmm. to, to drive, to be a top performing fund that we need to, um, we need to do everything we can to help those companies and be somewhat active and as they need our help to, to get them there. Well, I'd also think, you know, as we've talked, it's a young ecosystem. There's lots of opportunity, but it, there's also lots of guidance and support needed. So to me, and again, I'm just giving my, my personal opinion for what it's yeah. worth, having individuals like yourselves that's, that are willing to invest and kind of get in the trenches. I also think that's what we need specifically in Western Canada to drive this thing forward. Like we don't need kind of absentee or uninvolved you know, money, we need money that brings expertise and know-how and understanding to where you've got a young ecosystem, you've got a lot of learning to take place. And Absolutely. I think that, and Calgary, we're great at, we're, Western Canada, we're great at coming together. I do believe that's one of yeah. our superpowers here. Yep. So I, I really like what you guys are doing. And as someone who's run companies and sat on advisory boards and, and it's a team sport. Absolutely. Like, let's be, like there's no one, like it's, you know, there's the, there's the face or the person that maybe kind of shows up as the leader, but man, there's a team of people figuring stuff out, solving problems, yeah. getting stressed yeah. out. Like that's Particularly at that early stage. Stage. Again, for, if you're pre-revenue, early yeah. revenue, like you've got so much going on. You, you, even if you're a team of three founders, like you're not going to figure it out all on your own, right? You you know that you need help. You need money, but you want the help as much as you want the money to to uh, help guide you on a certain path. And and that's uh, that's critical in the early stage, uh, I think. And so, um, you know, if that kind of circles back for me to one of the challenges of mobilizing capital at this early stage is that, um, you know, when you watch some of the the pitch yeah. events or investment summits that go on and you see companies present, like, there's a lot of great companies out there. Um, they're not necessarily all ready to be receiving investment mm-hmm. from investors. They don't present a really great polished story. And that's just the nature of a young company, right? Like it's going to take them some time and they're going to go pitch it a hundred <laughs> times and they're going to figure it out. But, but it can give people the wrong impression if they if, if if you're looking for certain things and you're experienced at a later stage and that's your lens, um, you're not going to see yeah, the things you're right. looking for if you're looking at an earlier stage company. So you really need to have a little more patience and have a, a different lens you're looking through and understand that things aren't going to be perfect and see through the weeds, spend a little bit more time to really get to know the the founders and the team to understand what's there because a lot of times they're um, I think it's a great way that we find. Um, really good investment opportunities. There's, there's just things that are overlooked. There are, there are people and there are companies that are constantly overlooked here in Alberta because a lot of the investment community lens is focused on looking for revenue at a little bit okay. later yeah. stage because revenue gives you a little bit more of a, a signal, right? It gives you a little more comfort that, oh, okay, this company must be on the right path. It's got some revenue. Well, if you understand how to evaluate a company when it doesn't have revenue and what to look for, we can still we can still mitigate a lot of risk that's there in a in a company by helping them. And when we invest in a whole portfolio, we mitigate some of that individual company risk. But our lens needs to be different, and we need to have more of the investment community understanding what that means to look at through the lens of a of um, evaluating an earlier stage company that doesn't have five hundred thousand or a million dollars in revenue. We're just looking at well, sifting things. sifting through trying to find the gold is different than seeing it lying there and then just go start digging. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there you go. And so then if you if you want to generate great returns for investors and you can be the one that finds the things that other people are, aren't able to see, there's that's why we think there's great opportunity here at this early stage in our in our ecosystem mm, too, like right? That. Like yeah. you know, there's not a lot of competition in those early stages, so um we think we can do well. Well, go where the, go where the competition isn't, right? That's you know, the age-old strategies or, or buzzy terms. <laughs> so curious, do I need to if I yeah. wanted to say if we get off this call and I'm like, "Brian, love what you guys are about. I want to get involved." Do I have to be like wh- where do I have to be as an investor? to participate? Do I need to be an accredited investor? Do I need to meet certain criteria, just the way Canadian securities law functions to be able to even participate back to how do we create more accessibility? Like it's kind of fits along the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion mindset as well. Like how do we keep, how do we let more people get involved, but safely? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like a fund like ours, they're they're typically all geared to accredited investors. Ours as well is. Um, And but at the same time, uh, you know, what does that mean? So, so sometimes that means people set a million dollar investment minimum. And if you don't have a million dollars, I don't want to, then then don't waste your time because they don't want to manage so many investors. Yep. Right. But again, our, our, our fund um, and, and some others around, I think are willing to accept smaller investments that maybe $150,000 and things okay. that might be more manageable for people or even a little bit less to get, uh, to get their, dip their toe in the water. Again, I, I've met with investors and um, many who, they don't have experience in the sector. They've got lots of wealth, but they're just not that willing to write a really big check yet. And some well, might be fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and and it could turn into more later once they get comfortable, right? Yeah, and there might course. be a great 
strategic move to take some of those smaller investors, but you have to be willing to, from a fund management perspective, wh- whoever the fund is, the more smaller investors you take, the bigger your, um, the more work you're creating for yourself on the investor relations side of things and managing that afterwards, right? So that is a, a little bit of a challenge and typically why some funds don't like to go down to smaller investors. Mm-hmm. But um, the the Securities Commission, uh, don't uh, quote me on the exact terms of this, but the Securities Commission here in Alberta and in Saskatchewan has recently put some stuff out where they're allowing um, investors that are not accredited. I can't remember the term for it, but if you had, say, a, um, a CFA designation or you did like a finance degree in business school uh, okay, or you had okay. some kind of securities training or something that makes you uh, more of a, uh, I don't remember the term, if it's qualified, something that gives you um, a little bit more education to, to um, you know, assume you should know more about what you're investing in, then there are exemptions now that allow you, I believe, to invest up to $10,000 at a time in a, in a specific company. Uh, okay. Um, so and, there are, so, a, so there, are, there, are, there are changes taking place slowly to, to move some of those. There are. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think, I think they limit you right now to $30,000 a year and maybe $10,000 a, a pop. So it's not yeah. like, you know, they're still limiting um, the amount of money that you can, uh, can put out there and put at risk. Cause they obviously they're trying to protect it, those um, smaller, less sophisticated investors mm-hmm. who are at risk of, of um, you know, a, a loss on that type of thing. So there is some democratization happening there. And I think, I think it's a factor of, of, as we talked about earlier, all this move, money is moving out of the public markets into the, private markets if we don't give the average investor a chance to participate in the private markets the same way that the large institutional guys are doing then how's that fair for for investors and so we got to find more ways for some of those um, smaller investors to participate and have the same chance to earn earn you know higher returns in their portfolio that other uh, large investors do as well and we're moving into i'm again i'm sharing my own thoughts here a younger group of investors that are way less fearful. They're way more self-educated. The access to information obviously is exponentially more than it was even 10 years ago, let 20 years ago, whether it's Wellsimple or Robinhood in the States, or people are getting a mm-hmm. lot more comfortable stewarding and managing their own money and taking control. So to me, that's those individuals, if you don't let them, they're going to find a way anyways. Like they, they people will, they will. There's, there, there's a new generation of creativity coming of like, I will, I know just you, you leave me alone. I'll do my thing. Uh, I don't know. I just think that <laughs> yeah. there's some interesting trends that once the genie, that genie's long out of the bottle, <laughs> I think. Yeah, no, it's true. I think, um, people are going to want it. They're going to find ways to, to do it. And, you know, there's, there are some sources of crowdfunding and, and other small ways that you can invest mm. in private capital. But I think what's important for me is to make sure that, you know, the, the ecosystem needs to develop ways that protect those investors and protects their yep. their their money. It doesn't matter how many zeros are in your wealth. You know, if you're investing ten thousand or ten million, you should have the right to the same kind of information and protection as an investor that uh, the large investors do. And so, we just need to make sure that those kind of people don't get um, don't get taken advantage of and and don't yeah. um, don't get exposed to unnecessary risk in the in the process. And so, I think that's what the securities regulations are are, are making steps towards. Uh, solving those those challenges and it doesn't go far enough probably yet i mean there's you know add add ten thousand dollars up a time across you know millions of people in this province and that's a lot of money right um yeah yeah so no, there's, I, I hear you there's some and it's good i know we've been talking a lot about the opportunity and the potential upsides but there is downsides and there is risk and you know sometimes you shady things happen in, 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 in the, in the world of finance. So I, I don't want to talk like it is all sunshine and roses. There is, there's rules in place for reasons and there is checks and measures in place for good, for good reason. You know, I just watched the Bernie Madoff uh, story on yeah. Madoff story on whatever yep. platform. And he was a pretty credible guy to a lot of people. And you Absolutely. know, we all know that we all, we all know, we all know that's a pretty crazy story. Actually, if you watch that yeah. documentary, it kind of is yep. mind blowing actually how, how many people were kind of in on it or how many people looked the other way. I, I didn't. Yeah. Anyways, I won't begin to comment. It seems even more complicated than how they portrayed it on the, on the show. But it's not that far away, right? Like there's plenty of examples in our own backyard of the, you know, 2000, seven, eight, nine in the real estate industry. There are a lot of people that got into the real estate syndication business that took a lot of people's money, five, $10,000 at a time. And there's been billions of dollars lost because those people, um, you know, probably shouldn't have been investing in that kind of stuff. And so the securities industry has evolved a lot, but again, back to making sure that, uh, we, we protect investors and, and have, um, um, you know, education and accessibility and a, and a balance between all those things that are that are necessary, whether you're a small investor or those bigger high net worth and, and family type investors that are investing more money. They're, I think they're, they all have similar hesitancies probably right now. They're not quite sure about this space and they're trying to figure out how to participate in it, right? 
Yeah, as, as, as the world rapidly changes. So, Brian, super informative today. I love your, I love your point of view on stuff, and it is, it's just it's always good to look. You can look, you can turn this one around in your hand so many times, and every time you do it, it's a different side that, that kind of shows up. Um, road ahead for Alberta. Obviously, you're optimistic. You feel the timing is right. You guys are kind of leaning in in the last, you know, again, five, year, five years ago was the idea, but the last couple of years, it's really, it's really come alive. Anything specifically on your horizon that you kind of get excited about or worried about, specifically around the Alberta economy or Western Canada in general? Um. I mean, I think there's, I think, well, that's a big question. I mean, there's, there's certainly lots. Uh, there's, <laughs> so if I drop you right on that one right at the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of momentum here um, when we speak of the technology ecosystem and a lot of good things going on. I mean, obviously I'm worried about the, the funding at these pre-revenue and early revenue stages that we're talking about. We need to find ways to mobilize more capital and a lot more capital. Um, you know, I, I think there's, I think based on the numbers and the, the companies that exist, even just here in Calgary, there's, there's demand for a hundred to $200 million of, of capital right now in that pre-revenue and early revenue. Stage. Oh, interesting. So from a, from a pure gap perspective, we're at that level. Interesting. Uh, I, okay. I think so. Just based on again, how many companies I know that are out there and how many of them are less than $500,000 in revenue and how many are, are out to raise money. It doesn't mean that there's a hundred to $2 million worth of, of companies that are, you know, going to be funded, but there is certainly demand for a lot of capital out there. And if we don't get this segment of the market mobilized, then um, how do we build the future success stories? You know, the, the, the future Atobotics or the, the future Simons and Neo Financials, these companies that are ones that are raising 50, 60, $70 million and um, others that are having billion dollar exits. We need to, we need to build the funnel and fill the pipeline at the bottom and build a really strong foundation so that, that, you know, as we get up to the top, there's, there's a constant stream of companies in, in development at every stage along the way there. And that, for me, that all starts at the bottom and building a, a really big foundation there. And, and, and how do we do that? Again, I think, I think finding ways to mobilize capital into more funds, um, not just us, there needs to be more, more funds that are out there doing something similar in this space um, I think if you get funds that are active and people come to trust them and they're open and accessible to investors, then the same thing is going to start to happen that we've been seeing. We're going to invest in a company. We're going to welcome other capital from the sidelines to come into a, a deal on, a, on their own and participate. And we'll get some of that money off the fence. The angel investment community is, is great and it's an important part of the ecosystem as well. But it's not always safe for a part-time investor to go investing on your own. Like yeah, that's why a lot of, a lot of people invest in a fund, then you can have opportunities to invest alongside that fund in things in the future, not just, not just in the fund. And the angels, if you look at the NACO data on average uh, deal sizes that angel investors are participating in, it's gone from about a million dollars five years ago to almost $3 million in 2019. So, you know, when, again, that divergence we talked about, it's, it's even happening amongst the angel Groups, right. Of course, there's local inv- investors that are that are investing, you know, little twenty five, fifty thousand dollar investments. But the, with the bigger ones that are reporting, like across Canada, the deals are getting bigger and bigger, and the problem gets gets worse. So I think we need to find ways to mobilize capital, and maybe that is, I think, a really great step that um, is in progress right now. Is the city of Calgary through their Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund has. Um, put out an RFP just over a month ago. Um, they want to allocate, I believe, $7.5 million to a fund manager who's going to invest in these earlier stage companies here in our own backyard. And so that process is ongoing and um, we'll see where that lands. But that's a great it's a great start. Um, you know, Alberta Enterprise Corporation is a, a provincial body that um, has invested money in a lot of traditional venture capital funds as well. Um, and they, they have... They have people here in the province and they do a little bit of investing here, but we haven't built enough of that foundation that hasn't bubbled up for them to have a really, really healthy selection of companies that have $2 million in revenue that are ready for their investment yet, right? So can we get Alberta Enterprise Corporation to get more comfortable investing in emerging managers and more smaller and smaller, newer managers that don't have as big of a track record um, to help democratize the asset class and get people focused on that really early stage. It needs to happen through smaller investors, smaller funds that are built to focus on an earlier stage of investing. And we need to get past the old models and think that you got to be a big successful fund, that you got to be a, a big, um, you know, lifelong venture capital investor to be able to, to do this. It's not, uh, 
I don't think it's rocket science. I think we're evaluating business fundamentals like we would be, whether it was a manufacturing business, an oil and gas business. We're just breaking it down to its basics and, and fundamentals and simplifying that. And, and it's like I would say to any investor who comes to talk to us, like if you can't talk about your business, especially in a, in a pitch, in a simple way that's easy for someone that's not an expert to understand it, then you've got problems. If you can't explain it to your 12 or 14-year-old child, then you can't explain it to an investor. And if we can't talk about the asset class in a similar way to our local investment community to get them to invest alongside us, then then I think we have challenges. So if we need to be more transparent and just simplify the way that we present this um, asset class to them and help them understand it and uh, get the capital mobilized and uh, the dollars uh, moving into our uh, our own our backyard here to build those future success stories. Oh, it's exciting to hear because I believe we are moving the right direction. Even the conversations I was having, you know, a couple of years ago on the show compared to now, it's evolved. There's a different tone, even listening to what you you guys are doing and some of the other groups in the city. So, no, I uh, I, I think we're on the right. I, think so I believe too. we're on the right path, right? I'm always I'm very I'm very yeah. bullish. I'm very optimistic on on Calgary, but that doesn't mean there isn't still a lot of things need to happen to create this future that we all believe is yeah, is, absolutely is, is, is possible. I, I, I totally agree. I think we're on the right, right path. The money's out there, and people often say that you know, well, there's a lot of money out here. You know, good companies, the money will find its way to them. Uh, I don't agree with that statement. I, I think the money is out there, but we need to help. Uh, we need to help the uh, investors who have that wealth to uh, understand uh, how to see some of these companies differently and understand what's what's really there, so that the capital can can get off the fences. These things don't happen by accident. No, I no. For a second. <laughs> Yeah, no, just to just do work hard and do good and it'll all work out. Unfortunately, that's nice. It's idealistic, but it's not necessarily. There's a lot of mechanisms that put in place, but we do have a city that I think is also incredibly willing to help each other and to contribute and to give advice and to do those things to create that the community to bring those two groups together. Because you're right, it's 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 investing, but it's you know, it's also the startup. You, both that you guys, we, Absolutely. we all need yeah, each other. Yeah, and there's a lot going successful. on. It's definitely, we're definitely heading down that path, right? It's just a matter of how can we accelerate that that path uh, as much as possible to make things happen, right? Faster, yeah, faster, <laughs> faster, yeah. faster, faster, faster. Brian, hey, what's the best way if uh, either an investor or a startup was listening or someone just wants to chat, what's the best way for people to get to get a hold of you to kind of get yeah, connected I'd with you guys? Yeah, just look me up more? on LinkedIn or even just on our on our website. My uh, contact information is the, is there and um, uh, you can find your way to me and I'm happy to happy to chat and answer questions and um, and just get people uh, thinking about this space. The more that we're thinking about it from an investment perspective and thinking about it a little bit differently, I think the better for uh, for all of us. And, and and maybe the last thing I would I would say no, is you I know we've we've talked a lot about venture capital um, as an asset class. I think maybe my parting thought would would be to encourage us to start to talk about seed capital and pre-seed capital, not not venture capital by lumping mm-hmm. these by lumping what our fund is doing into the same terminology with venture capital. Um, I think it adds to the confusion because investing in an earlier seed and pre-seed stage company. It's a different asset class, really, than than venture capital is. There's different risks. There's different return profiles. It's a different type of due diligence. And so, I think we need to start to see the, the pre-seed and seed stage as a as its own unique asset class. That's that's different, separate from traditional venture capital. And I think that's probably going to help us uh, get down the path of uh, get helping more people to understand this earlier stage. Well, putting things in categories, then creating the understanding of why it's different and what it is. I'm guilty myself of throwing around the word venture capital. I really, I really appreciate what you just said. It's a, it's a great mic drop right at the end. That's, that's an Easter egg for anybody, anybody who's decided to listen to us for 56 minutes, Brian. But I think you're right. When you lump things together, it creates more confusion. But when you separate it, give it a give it its own category, and then explain it and understand it, it creates a whole different dynamic than when you just lump it together. And I, I. This industry is so full of terms that I think get misused yeah. and I'll, I'll hear three or four guests use the same term, but I'm like, you used it totally differently than the other person used it. So, I, you know, I even feel like I'm navigating my own way through just getting getting up to speed on, on, on all the terminology, but you're right. If you're not educated or comfortable in something, it's Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, maybe the last thing I leave you with is, you know, I've written a couple of things on uh, LinkedIn, a couple of papers that people can find there. If you go to our website, um, I've, I've oh, awesome. published okay. a few pieces of my own uh, research on our website too, just about the local ecosystem and how how people generate returns in in this asset class. Stuff to help uh, educate people. So there's some resources there that are a good start to to look at as well if people are looking to understand more about the space. 
Awesome. Brian, that was a, that was a fantastic conversation. Wealth and wealth of information. I really enjoy your perspective and, and, you know, kudos and high fives to you guys for clearly seeing the need and the opportunity and then coming into the market. Cause you're right. If we don't build that foundry, you know, you, you kind of rhymed off the antibiotics and the cements and the benevities, like those ones at the top, but that list gets pretty short, yes. pretty quick. Yeah. And if we're not, if we're not backfilling, it's great. We have successes, but you know, you're only as good as who's your, who's your next one. It's like, it's like sales. Okay. What have you done this month? What, what are we doing now? Like, what are we doing to set up that, that story, that, that headline two years Absolutely. ago? Absolutely. Got it. Brian, thanks so much for the chat. Good luck with what you're doing. And uh, I look forward to a follow-up episode. And because uh, as things are evolving, I think you and I could probably touch base every six yeah, months. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the what, what, where, where, the where are they now conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it'd be great. We'll stay in touch for sure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Brian.